This morning we have a treat. We have the opportunity to have a sermon given to us uh, by my good friend Michael Rhodes. He and his family are old and dear friends of the Banners, and they have been such a blessing to us, and I know that he will be a blessing to you as well this morning as he expounds God's word for us. Michael is under care of a Presbyterian church where he is seeking ordination, and he's welcomed to our pulpit by the session of this church. Michael Rhodes is the director of Community Transformation and an instructor at the Memphis Center for Urban Theological Studies, where he leads in efforts, leads uh, efforts towards equipping urban pastors and community development practitioners with theologically informed tools for community transformation. I think you could ask him what that really means and he'll tell you. He's also the author of a new book that is exciting and fantastic. He's a PhD candidate through the University of Aberdeen. So please welcome my good friend, Michael Rhodes. Good morning, everyone. It really is a huge privilege to be at uh, the church where Luke and Megan are and the Hecht family, her other good old college friends. And it's a privilege to be with you this morning in Sunday school and just to share and uh, whatever else that uh, crazy bio that title that uh, Luke read means. It means that I've spent most of my career trying to figure out what it means for the church to help people who are struggling and uh, economically and socially. And that work has given me the opportunity to look at what a lot of churches and nonprofits um, and others do uh, in that work. And I think probably you'll agree with me that the church in America has rediscovered that the Bible calls us to care for people who are struggling. But what I've sensed in my own life and in the lives of the congregations and people that I've worked with is that if there were a metaphor, a word picture that captured the way we try to care for those who are struggling, that metaphor or word picture would be the soup kitchen. I imagine many of you have volunteered a soup kitchen. Uh, you know, in a soup kitchen, you divide the room in half and you put all the people who have soup on one side and all the people who need soup on the other. And the way the soup kitchen works is that we help by transferring the soup from the soup havers into the empty bowls of the soup needers. And while that can be a, va a valuable act of service, I think as a picture, as a metaphor, as a strategy, it falls short of what God's word calls us to. And I wanna to suggest to you this morning that the goal of our economic lives and the strategy that we use to pursue care for the needy is not the soup kitchen where everyone gets fed, it's the potluck where everyone brings a plate. If a soup kitchen divides the world up into haves and have-nots, you can't have a potluck until every single person brings a plate, until every single person gives gifts to everyone, and everyone receives gifts from everyone. And from this perspective, the primary problem facing the church in America in relationship to care for the poor isn't simply that we aren't doing enough to help those who are struggling socially and economically out there. It's that too often... The churches that we create aren't welcoming the materially and socially poor in here to give and receive gifts in community with one another. So what I want to argue this morning, and I want to suggest to you this morning, is that God is calling us as his people to become the potlucking people of God, who in our life together are embodying the good news in a way that welcomes the poor and marginalized to give and receive gifts among us. And I want to try to show you this vision from Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. So if you have a Bible, uh, join me as I read from God's word. This is Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29. 
The text reads, You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. And before the Lord your God in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell there, you shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and your flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And if the way is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe when the Lord your God blesses you, because the place is too far from you, which the Lord your God chooses to set his name there, then you shall turn your tithe into money and bind up the money in your hand and go to the place that the Lord your God chooses and spend the money for whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and you shall eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your household. And you shall not neglect the Levite who is within your towns, for he has no portion or inheritance with you. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your towns. And the Levite, because no, he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. This is the word of the Lord. Now, I want to suggest to you that Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29, is calling the people of God to become a potlucking community. And becoming a potlucking community for the people of God in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29 is going to require them to reimagine a number of aspects of their community and social life. And I want to suggest to you the first thing that we see in this passage is that becoming the potlucking people of God will require Israel to worship their generous king with joy. Becoming the potlucking people of God before anything else will require Israel to worship their generous king with joy. Now, to get this, I want to do something that we don't typically do in church. I want to play a little game right here from the pulpit. So just sort of angle yourself towards the person next to you, and we're going to do a free word response. I'm going to say a word, and I want you to tell the person next to you the feeling words the feeling words that you feel when you hear the word that I say, okay? So I'm gonna say a word, I'll say a few words, and you say the person next to you out loud, the feeling words that you feel when I say my word. Got it? Okay, ready? All right, tithe. Building campaign. Taxes. Stewardship Sunday. fundraising. Now, maybe you guys are all holier than me, but my hunch is there were a few negative feeling words associated with at least some of those words, right? There are a few things as uncomfortable as the passing of the offering plate at times in our lives. There are a few things as uncomfortable as uh, finding out that you still owe Uncle Sam some of your hard-earned money, right? We know about taxes, we know about fundraising campaigns, and we don't always like them. But the deal is that in the ancient world, they knew about those things too, Right? And so when Moses says, once a year, I want you to take 10% of your stuff and come to the central sanctuary, everybody knows what he's talking about. And they like it even less than you do, right? Everybody knows that the, the bills are about to get collected, right? This is the time when your hard earned resources get skimmed off by what is in Israel, both the religious establishment and the political establishment. See, across the ancient world, tithes basically worked as taxes 
to fund the government and the religious structures of the day. And so the Israelites know what's coming when God says, bring your tithes to the central sanctuary, except for they don't. Because here in Deuteronomy 14, 22 through 29, God tells his people something that no king and no priest and no would-be God had ever told his people. When you bring the money that you owe me to the sanctuary, I want you to feast on it. I want you to take the firstborn of your cows, the firstborn of your goods, the firstborn of your sheep, and 10% of everything that you earned, and I want you to throw such a big feast of it that there's no tithe left at the end of it. And the text actually says, in case you're having trouble, saints, imagining what sorts of things you could buy with your tithe, let me tell you what you can buy. You can buy meat, you can buy wine, you can buy strong drink, still having trouble. Buy whatever you wish and feast on it before the Lord. This is a picture of God teaching his people something that we so often miss. God, we owe him everything. We owe this king everything, but he's the most generous king imaginable. He gives it back to us. And he commands us to rejoice with him. This is a picture of a God who we experience deep joy when we find ourselves to be his subjects. This is a picture of a God who gives what we owe him back for our own good. This is a God who, when we worship him, we find ourselves at the most unimaginably exciting party. This is a generous king. And if we want to become the potlucking people, it starts by reminding ourselves that we worship a generous sovereign who gives his best gifts back to us, who gives what we owe back to us for our joy and so that we can celebrate with him. Brothers and sisters, when we worship false gods, when Israel worshiped false gods, gods like materialism, gods like workaholism, gods like sex addiction, gods like power, they demand ever steeper taxes and deliver ever poorer parties. But your king invites you into a relationship in which the more that we give ourselves over to him, the more we experience his deep generosity and joy. Your king demands only what is good for you. And your king gives you not just what you need to survive, but what we need to celebrate. This is a generous king. And Deuteronomy 14 invites us to get to know him in the way that we worship. But second of all, if Israel's going to become the potlucking people of God, they don't just need to learn to worship their generous king with joy. They also need to reimagine who belongs at the table. See, God's good gifts of the feast don't come back to Israel like a Big Mac handed through the drive-thru window. God doesn't distribute his good gifts like a TV tray dinner that you eat by yourself at home. God calls Israel to a community-wide feast by household. And if you're reading this passage in 2018 in America, we're liable to get confused here because if you're like me, uh, my household is made up of four children and my wife and I. It's a nuclear family household. But when the Bible talks about households, particularly in the ancient world, it isn't talking about a mom and dad and their kids. It's talking about an extended family kinship unit. So in Israel, people would live alongside not just their spouse and their children, but an aunt 
a widowed family member, orphans from around the community who become attached to your to your family, uh, even hired hands and workers would be, become a part of the household unit. The household was sort of the extended kinship, everybody connected to you, whether they were actually related to you or not. And so when Deuteronomy says, come and feast together with your household, it's telling the Israelites to come and feast together with everybody. That's why in Deuteronomy 16, Moses spells it out. When you feast, you come with you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite who is within your town, the immigrant who's from elsewhere, the fatherless and the widow. Everybody comes to the feast. And so when God gives his good gifts back to the community, he invites them to celebrate together with all sorts of people, specifically identifying the people most likely to be left out of Israel's table and most likely to be left out of our tables. The feasts that our Lord invites us to in which is one in which nobody gets left out. And not only are the Israelites invited to bring uh, extended kinship people with them, their immigrants and widow who are in their towns, the feast would become a place where people who didn't have family could connect with the community. In other words, the worship of God in joy became the place where strangers and outsiders became friends and became family. The feast, the worship of God on his good gifts created a context where those who are marginalized and isolated from the neighborhood or just new to the community could become members and friends and find a place of belonging. What this means is that first and foremost, the poor in Israel were not helped by Israel writing checks and sending them out. <laughs> this isn't a picture of a community that gets really excited about helping the poor and gives away twice as many turkey dinners as they did last year. This is a community who is good news to the poor by welcoming the poor and marginalized into the best Thanksgiving feast in the neighborhood. This is a community whose life together simply is good news for the poor and marginalized. Because the poor and marginalized are not simply recipients of charity, they're participants in the life of community. So, we want to become the potlucking people of God. We have to worship our generous king with joy. We have to reimagine who belongs at the table. But third, we have to aim our socioeconomic lives at the potluck. Israel is called not just to worship their generous king with joy, not just to reimagine who belongs at the table, but to orient their social and economic lives towards the potluck. What do I mean? Uh, in many ways, uh, one Christian economist puts it this way. In Israel, the goal of their economic lives, the target is the feast. The way that they know that their work has paid off is that there's enough for everybody to party together on. How do we know this? Well, just think about it. In Israel, the family farm is the family business. And so when God gives Israel in Deuteronomy a calendar that requires them to travel several times a year to feast together, he's basically saying several times a year, this is what I want you to do, business owners, shut it down. Shut the doors, lock the doors, close the register, and I want you to pilgrimage several days journey to the central worship sanctuary. And if you're like a business owner now, like then you'd go, okay, well, that's kind of hard because that's how I make my livelihood. At least I can leave my employees behind. No, you can't leave your employees behind. They're coming with you. Actually, everybody's coming with you, God says. Bring the whole community, the whole village. Shut down the business and come. And you might say, but we're not going to lose. We're going to lose all this money. And God said, yeah, that's okay. Making money isn't the point. The point is the feast. The point is worshiping together. You have enough to worship together, so come on and do it. 
And so their whole life, their economic life, is shaped and oriented towards being a community that can welcome everyone to feast on God's generous gifts. But this just doesn't play out in the feasts. I read not just 14, 20 through 22 through 27, which talks about the tithe festival every year, but in 27 through 29, we learn that every third year they do something different. Every third year, instead of having a huge party, they take the exact same amount of stuff, 10% of their yield, and they store it up in their towns. So every three years, yeah, we're going to skip the feast this year. This year, we're going to take everything that we would have feasted on, and we're going to put it in the towns. Why? Because it's going to provide food for the orphan and the immigrant and the widow and for anybody who cannot provide for themselves in the community. What I want to suggest to you is that this doesn't come out of nowhere. This isn't a random bit of social legislation. This is what we might call family economics. Having become a potlucking family at the table, they have to figure out how to be a potlucking family all year round. And if me, the landowner, and the poor widow belong together at the table of the Lord, then I can't go back to an economic way of life in the village where I have food on Thursday and my widowed neighbor doesn't. Being family who celebrates God's gifts in community and worship requires us to figure out how to be family back home. And so the way of life, the potlucking that happens at the table of God in the tithe becomes the rationale for figuring out how to provide for everybody all year long. In Deuteronomy 15, it gets even crazier because we come to a passage that most Old Testament scholars would say is the most radical, powerful, striking economic bit of legislation in all the Old Testament. It goes like this. If you lend somebody money, you can't charge them interest. And every seven years, you've got to forgive them their debts. No one can get permanently enslaved to debt. If someone becomes a debt slave every seven years, you have to set them free. When you set them free, you have to send them out with everything they need to become a self-sustaining member of society. No one is allowed to become a permanent slave in this community. Now, if you're a good business person and you find out that you're not allowed to get your debts repaid, the logical thing is not to give debt in the first place. Uh Uh-uh-uh, says Moses. Do not say in your heart, the year for forgiving debt is near, so I won't lend to my neighbor. No, open wide your hand and lend to your poor neighbor sufficient for their need. So not only are you not allowed to call your debts in after seven years, you're required to give loans, zero interest, to whoever has need of them. This is radical. This is the charter for an entirely new way of doing economic life. But you know what's really interesting about chapter 15? Over and over and over again, for the first time in Deuteronomy, the person who is poor is described as the brother and the neighbor. And what Moses is doing is saying, you became family together at my table. So when you go back to work, you have to figure out what being family looks like in the way that you lend. You have to look, figure out what family looks like in the way you run your business. You have to figure out what family looks like in the way you give for those who are struggling. Your entire economic life has to be rethought through the lens of God has called us together to worship him in joy. And that means that we have to treat each other like brothers and sisters, not just when we're in church, but when we're out there in the marketplace. They had to aim their economic lives towards the potluck. So much for Israel. What about us? 
What does this mean for us? If for Israel becoming the potlucking people of God required them to worship their generous king with joy, to reimagine who was at their table, and to aim their social and economic lives at the potluck, I want to suggest it means very similar things for us. I want to make just three points. First, becoming the potlucking people of God requires us to become people who worship God through radical generosity. Becoming the potlucking people of God requires us to become people who worship God through radical generosity. And here we face a problem. You see, from 1968 to 2001, U.S. per capita incomes controlled for inflation doubled. So the average American controlled for inflation in 2001 made double what the average American made controlled for inflation in 1968. During that exact same period, average Christian giving moved from 3.1% of incomes to 2.6% of incomes. In other words, over one 30-year period, Christians in America doubled how much they made and reduced the percentage of what they gave. In this exact same period, the average American's self-reported happiness, how happy they say they are, stayed the same during a period of unprecedented economic growth or went down. And during this exact same period, inside and outside the church, mental health problems spiked, including a dramatic increase in suicide, not least among our teenagers. So we live in a world in which we've become wealthier than our grandparents thought possible and less happy, less generous, and more suicidal. What is going on? I want to suggest to you that we have forgotten to worship our God with our money and have instead sold out to the idols of our culture. Greed, Paul says, is idolatry. And there's ample evidence that we've given into that idolatry by earning the highest incomes ever imagined in human history and giving less than 3% of them to God and his kingdom. And if we want to experience the joy of the potluck, we're going to have to begin to free our hearts from that idolatry by learning to give generously. Now, I know some of you are thinking, this is a great message for someone else. <laughs> Whenever I hear sermons or teaching about giving, I'm always like, yeah, I know a lot of people who need to hear that message. Maybe you've written down their emails. Like, I need to email this to so-and-so. Brothers and sisters, I want to suggest that I'm talking to all of us, that all of us, all of us can find ways to live more generous lives, to give up more so that we can give more, not simply out of obligation, but because this is part of how God is inviting us to participate in the generous, joy-filled community that he's organizing in the church. But secondly, not only will we have to learn how to be generous through giving, but we're going to have to reimagine who our families are. Imagine Deuteronomy 14 saying, hey guys, I want you to come and feast with the orphan and the immigrant and the widow and the outsider. Well, in Israel, they faced a problem. The wealthy people usually didn't like very much the orphan and the immigrant and the widow and the outsider. We face two problems. We don't like them, and too often we don't know them. If we hear God's call to radically welcome others around our dinner table or into this congregation 
Too often the problem is we don't know enough names to add to that guest list. If God's saying to us, like he says in Deuteronomy 10, you will welcome the immigrant and provide him with clothing and shelter because I love the immigrant, says the Lord. We don't have names to put with that label. If Deuteronomy assumed that there were poor people in the midst of God's people who would come to the party, too often we just aren't around those folks. So what that means is that if we're going to become the potlucking people of God, we're going to have to learn to add some names to our guest list. We're going to have to intentionally seek out people from across the lines that divide us. Those might be lines of ethnicity. Those might be lines of economic class. Those might be lines of citizenship. I don't know what they are in your community, but I know that God wants to create a potlucking community here in Clarksville that is good news for everybody and not least the poor and marginalized. And that the only way that we can get that is if God's people commit to know the folks who right now aren't on our guest lists. And as I was sitting here in worship, I was looking at your sheet. And I want to suggest that a good way to do this is just to show up and volunteer at the places you already give. I can already see that your church has a commitment to the poor, both because you are working to feed school children in need through the fuel program and because you're offering supplies to the homeless through the Mercy Packs ministry. Brothers and sisters, there are people who are taking your generous gifts and interfacing with the people who need them. What if you made a commitment that whenever, as a church, you gave to poverty alleviating initiatives with your money, you also gave of your time? You went with the organizations that do this work. You got to know the people who are the recipients of your very important charitable contributions. And what if through those relationships you began to add names of people from other walks of life, from other parts of the community, who God wants to invite to his party through congregations like yours? I don't know what exactly it would look like here, but I know it would look like some sort of intentional seeking out those who are least likely to end up on our invitation list and asking what would it look like to potluck with those folks. And then lastly, and very briefly, because we talked about it in Sunday school and my time is getting short, if Israel had to say, what's it look like to be family in our businesses, in our investment practices, and the way that we do life together, we're not just going to have to think about who's at our table. We're going to have to bend our economic lives towards the potluck as well. And here I just want to tell you one story from the work that I have been at in South Memphis. Uh, I worked for an organization for five years called Advance Memphis. We're in a neighborhood where seven out of ten adults are not working. And in that context, I have a really good friend. His name's Donald. Donald is a guy who grew up uh, in poverty. Uh, he has a physical disability. Uh, he lived on the street. He became an addict. He's a career violent felon, which means he has multiple violent criminal records on his record. And one day, a heroic neighborhood pastor in our community, Pastor Lamar Walker, told him about Jesus. And Donald became a new creation in Christ. And he became an evangelist. And he became a participant in his church, but he still needed a job. And he never really had one, and he couldn't find one. So he came to a job training program at Advanced Memphis. We told him that God loved him and that God wanted him to work and talked about what that could look like. And then we helped him find his first and his second job, his first job and his first promotion and his next promotion by going to often Christians in the community and saying, I know that Donald has a criminal record, but we really think that he is called by God to bring a plate to this potluck. Would you hire him? And because those people did hire him, because Christians in those businesses advocated for folks like Donald coming through a program like Advance, Donald not only got his first job, he got several promotions. Now, along the way, he said, I want to start a small business. 
because there's too many men in my community who are selling drugs and they don't think they have options. So Donald started a lawn care business that operates as a side hustle. It's a side gig, but we live in the gig economy and everybody needs one. And so Donald is adding tens of thousands of dollars to his family's household income by cutting lawns now. But even more than that, when I look out the window and see Donald working, he's often got men with him working who would never have gotten a job anywhere else. When my kids look out the window, they see a career-violent felon, formerly homeless addict, bringing an incredible plate to the potluck, a plate that I can't bring. Now, how did that happen? There's a lot of things that went into that, not least Donald's own hard work and ingenuity. But part of what happened is people in the faith community in Memphis said, what would it look like if we treated Donald like a family member who can bring a plate in the way that we work? Well, it would require us to hire people like Donald. And then somebody else said, what would it look like for us to treat Donald like a family member who can bring a plate to the potluck in the way that we spend? And those people hired Donald, this career violent felon, to cut their lawn, to be in their house and their space, or to do work for their business. Somebody had to say, what would it look like for us to treat Donald like a family member in the way that they invest. And some people have invested in Donald's business so he could get the equipment that he needs to service ever larger contracts. And brothers and sisters, I want to suggest to you that some of the most exciting things that are happening in care for the poor right now are happening because God's people, right where they are, are saying, how would we change not just the way we give, but the way that we work, the way that we spend, the way that we invest in such a way that other people are invited to bring a plate to our potluck. And what good news it would be for those who are suffering if you began to ask that question and embody that answer in your life. Given this background of feasts and such, it's no surprise, to me anyways, that when Jesus shows up, the way he eats mimics the feasts of Deuteronomy. When Jesus shows up at his table, you find the outcasts, the ethnically other, the sinners, all at big parties. It's not an accident that people call Jesus a a drunkard and a glutton, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, because that's who he was feasting with. He invited people to become family around his table, this table, by radically loving and forgiving others and by welcoming them into a community where everybody brings a plate, everybody has something to contribute, everyone gives, and everyone receives. So as we close, I want to say two things. First, If you don't know that Jesus, the Jesus who loves you so much that he gave his actual body and blood to feed and sustain you and to welcome you into a new kind of community, if you don't know a God so generous that what you owe him, he gives back, if you don't know this king who paid the price for your joy with his own body and blood, Would you not leave here today without talking to somebody who can tell you about that Jesus and walking with you and entering into a relationship with him? Don't leave if you don't know that Jesus without getting to know this king. Because there are lots of people in the world, lots of idols in the world that promise to deliver the goods, but there's only one king who's paid for the feast with his own life. If you do, if that's our king, if you've met Jesus at this table, would you come and be renewed, and be restored, and feast on the good gifts of a good king who gives us back what we owe him by rights. And then may 
by God's Spirit, we leave here empowered to bear witness to that king by becoming a potlucking community founded on God's gifts, given and received in a new kind of family for the glory of our king, for the love and care of the marginalized, and for the good of our own lives. Pray with me. Jesus, we are so grateful to be the recipients of your generous kingdom. You tell us in your word that it is your good pleasure to give us the kingdom, God. Would we receive it? Make us people who receive it, Jesus. Transform us by your powerful spirit into a people who receive your kingdom and bear witness to it with our words and with our lives in such a way that people come to know you, that the marginalized are welcomed into a new family, and that your gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Thank you, Michael. At this time, I would invite my fellow elders to join me up front as we...